Well, howdy and good afternoon, worthy friends. This is the Bear Brief on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers, coming at you live from the Republic of Texas. I'm your host, Rick Barrett. 844-527-8723 is the number if you want to give me a call during the course of this show, if there is anything you want to talk about during any of the uh, issues and things that are brought up. You can call me at any time. We can stop and talk to you. I'd actually prefer it if you guys did. Uh, I can also be reached a couple of other ways uh, via the electronic email at barrettbrief at gmail.com, on Twitter at barrettbrief, and also broadcasting Barrett. I can also be found on the gab.ai, which I finally got back on. That is also under broadcasting Barrett. And you can find me on Instagram at rtb underscore two. We are at the start of a new week, so we have a new virtue of the week, and that is faith. And it is, without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So as we go through today's stories and topics and things like that, we need to remember that we are living in a fallen world and that any solutions that are proposed that act or demand government step in or anything like that is really just a secular solution and it is a short-term fix. Now, on tap for the brief today. During the bulletin, we're going to take a look at stories from across the news spectrum. We are going to get down to brass tacks in regards to the connection between mental illness and violence. Grin and Barrett is going to go against the liberation, I'm sorry, liberation theology. And the city of Corsicana has got me saying, you got to be kidding me. So, let's break down the brief. First up, the first story that we always do, the first thing we always look at, and that is the number of abortions that have taken place in the United States and the world as of right now, because we are living in the greatest genocide of our time. And we need to keep ourselves aware of that. So as of right now, we're at 64,708 today, putting us at our worldwide total of 7,144,844. So just remember that, ladies and gentlemen, and pray to Our Lady for an end to abortion. We have a national debt of 20 trillion, 852 billion, 588 million. I'm not going to give you the other ones because I won't be able to keep up with those numbers, but that is your generalized or your overall national debt that we are dealing with today. Now, let's get to the story of the day. The story of the day looks to be from Variety, and it is Oscars on pace for new low in early numbers. Live viewership of the 90th Annual Academy Awards Ceremony was down significantly from the 2017 telecast. Between 8 p.m. and 11 p.m. portion of the ABC telecast averaged an 18.9 household rating and a 32 share in the Nielsen metered market overnight ratings, which covered about 70% of U.S. households. That's down about 16% from the 22.537 ratings generated by the 2017 Oscars. Now, uh, in regards to me, did I watch it last night? Kind of yes, kind of no. What I did is I watched a live cast of a comedian who was just sitting around making fun of it. And it was good background noise for me while I was getting some work done that needed to take, uh, need to set the table for the week. Um, so I didn't really watch it. In addition, my favorite films of the year weren't even close to nominated. It was, uh, it was Wind River, 
If you haven't seen Wind River, I highly, highly suggest you see it. It is fantastic. Uh, but everything else, it's all a bunch of nonsense. And really, what I should have done today in Grin and Barrett was break down how they actually go through the Oscar process. Because it's not actually about um, setting up these films and then everybody voting. It's actually how much money is thrown at the Academy pre-nomination and then pre uh, award show. I think uh, I heard the average was $800,000 was spent in advertising to the Academy before the nominations happened. And then an average of about one and a half million after on the lead up to the award ceremony. So it's really nothing more than advertisement money and way to shell out cash for these films that apparently nobody wants to watch because none of them are any good. So that's your... That's your update right now on the Oscars, and I don't think it's going to get much better. They're trying to give, I don't know who they're trying to give hope, but they're trying to adjust for time zones, and then with DVRs, the plus threes, is not going to be good no matter what. But I'll ask you, did you watch it? Were there other versions? I know Rosie O'Donnell was live tweeting it last night. I don't know if anybody was uh, following her instead. Give me a call at 844-527-8723. In the world of politics, from ABC News, the latest, I'm sorry, not AP, it's AP News, the latest, Trump is not backing down on tariffs. President Trump said, quote, we are not backing down, unquote, on his push to impose tariffs on imported steel and aluminum, despite criticism from fellow Republicans. The president said this during an Oval Office meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And he says that he doesn't expect to have a trade war as a result of his push to crack down on a flood of steel imports. The president spoke after a spokesperson for White House, I'm sorry, not White House, but House Speaker Paul Ryan said the speaker was extremely worried about the consequences of a trade war and urged the White House to not advance on this plan. Well, Unfortunately, Mr. Ryan, it looks like POTUS is going to do this no matter what anybody says. For the clear reason, my take, is that he is trying to fulfill a campaign promise, for better or for worse. He wants to be able to go back to the Rust Belt in two years, two and a half years, and say, I'm fighting for you. I'm putting tariffs on all this foreign steel and foreign aluminum and so forth in order to to get jobs back here and, and so forth and make America great and slogan, slogan, slogan. But it is interesting to see the pushback from all sources. I know the EU threatened, they've already come out and said they threatened 3.7 billion, I believe, in tariffs back to the United States if this goes through. And then you have more establishment business friendly uh, conservatives like Paul Ryan, who are trying to push back on this idea because of the potential repercussions that go on down the line. You even have some people who are writing articles right now who are trying to compare these tariffs and the impact of these tariffs potentially to what happened before the Great Depression where they, they are blaming, um, I think it's the Smoot-Hartley tariffs. Uh, if I'm wrong, please tweet or call me, 844-527-8723. Those tariffs, they say, are the original or a primary reason for the Great Depression when that's just a very simple, simplified version or simplified explanation for it. But 
as we've talked about before, people are going to use whatever they can to try and get rid of or try to discredit this idea, even if it is a terrible idea. It, it looks like it's a pretty terrible idea. And there's no there's no check on it because the president can can impose these tariffs whenever he wants, which is why you shouldn't put all your faith, hope and trust in the federal government because <laughs> stuff like this happens. Uh, who do you think will blink first? Do you think Trump will actually back down? Now there are reports that are coming out that saying he's he's using this whole thing to get Mexico and Canada to deal on NAFTA. What do you think? 844-527-8723. In business news from CNN.com, Amazon wants to be your bank too. Amazon is said to be in talks with J.P. Morgan Chase, Capital One, and other banks and financial service firms about setting up an Amazon-branded checking account for its customers, according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, the Wall Street Journal said that talks are initial and that nothing may actually come from them. The story was also scant on details about what exactly Amazon might offer beyond checking accounts. So... Two, eventually, two thing, one of two things is going to happen, or maybe both things will happen. People are either going to, A, get sick of Jeff Bezos and all of his nonsense and his, his demands for tax breaks and all of this ever-consuming blob that he's trying to create, or B, they're going to line up and get tattoos on their – tattoos of barcodes on their forearms so that way they can be a part of the amazingness that they feel is Amazon. I, I, Amazon's presence is expanding all over the place. They have um, – staffless, meaning there's nobody in these grocery stores where you just walk in with your Amazon barcode, and they're only in Seattle right now. You walk in with your barcode, you take what you want, scan the barcode, and scan as you leave. So it is a a complete and utter attempt by Mr. Mr. Bezos to just eliminate human contact. <laughs> Apparently the guy is probably germophobic or something of that nature where he just doesn't want to touch anybody. Um... But how far is too far for this guy? He's just ever expanding and expanding. I know last week I talked about him actually taking or buying over the Ring company. Not the Ring like the Lord of the Rings. I'm talking about the Ring doorknob camera. He's buying that. He's he's now looking to to create a bank. And you know there will be people that are just super excited about this because they are all about everything Amazon all the time. But the idea is how far is too far? Do you think it's too far or you know what? Call me up if you're lining up for that barcode that they can tattoo so that way you don't have to fiddle around with that nasty one-click purchase. 844-527-8723. You are listening to The Barrett Brief on the Crusade Channel featuring King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. Right now we're in the bulletin and we're talking about stories from across the spectrum and I want to know what you think about any of these stories. You can give me a call at 844-527-8723. Moving on. To international news. From Reuters, vote in South Africa's parliament moves land reform closer. South Africa took a step on Tuesday to hasten the transfer of land from white to black owners when parliament backed a motion seeking to change the constitution to allow land, exp- um, uh, land taking without compensation. The ruling African National Congress, or ANC, has long promised reforms to redress radical disparities in land ownership, and the subject remains highly uh, emotional more than two decades after the end of apartheid. 
whites still own most of South Africa's land following centuries of brutal colonial dispossession. Now, the situation in, in South Africa, besides the fact that they're running out of water, is almost unfathomable or unbelievable. Uh, when they talk about in the story that whites still own most of South Africa's land, that's because in South Africa, these white farm owners can trace their lineage all the way back up to the Dutch settlers that got there hundreds of years ago. These people who work these lands actually know what to do. And it's been shown when you take these lands from these people, it doesn't matter if they're white or black, you take these these lands from people who know what they're doing and you just give them to another group without any kind of training or any kind of experience. The people who have given their lands or have had their lands taken and given to black South Africans, they actually ruin these farms because they don't know how to tend them. But they're going to have to have their land taken from them if this goes through the rest of the actual parliamentary process that they have down there. And I'm pretty sure it's going to happen because this is something that has been a goal of these systems or these parties since they took power. And really, it's not for any other reason but because the Dutch settlers are white. And it is something to akin of this needs to be done to make everything better in the name of equality or to fix the centuries of brutal, brutal colonial dispossession, as they say in the article. Now, let me ask you, have you heard anything about what's going on in South Africa? Or is this the first you've heard of it? Give me a call at 844-527-8723. In religious news from Church Militant. California gender-affirming law strips parental rights. A new set of laws will result in taking away parental rights and forcing the gay agenda on the most vulnerable of children and adults. California's bill AB 2119 would legislate only gender-affirming health care into the state's foster care system. In addition to, quote, strategies to increase family acceptance, unquote, this bill allows for the use of puberty-blocking drugs as well as cross-sex hormones and cosmetic surgery on children who are actually in the foster care system. This same law bans any attempt aimed at aligning a children or non-minors dependent assigned sex at birth and gender identity. Unquote. And that's the end of the article. Now, folks, slowly but surely, we this glob of supposed independent states that has been strapped together and called a nation is the culture within this quote nation unquote is giving away our children to the state. More and more people are more than happy to sign up for this. Um, and even people who don't sign up for this, it's happening to them. I did uh, a couple weeks back, I highlighted a story from Ohio about the girl who was suing her parents for emotional distress because they would not call her a he. And guess what? The follow-up is the the uh, state Supreme Court sided with the child and stripped uh, the parents of any rights, of any custody rights. And now you have the state of California literally pushing in or adopting a gender-affirming uh, ideology within their healthcare system. Contrast this with the fact that in states like Georgia, they just passed a law that allowed um, 
adoption agencies to actually deny couples, uh, homosexual couple, couples, the ability to adopt kids and how the left is throwing fit upon fit upon fit about that. But yet they come back and say, well, the state can allow this gender affirming health care to, to foster acceptance. Well, these kids in these programs, these kids in these foster homes, they're so desperate for any kind of attention or any kind of hope that they're going to they're going to swallow whatever you, you put in front of them. So this is an actual despicable attempt by the state to literally take advantage of the most vulnerable, those who will not speak out against it because they have no choice. You don't think it can happen to you? You don't think your state will be able to actually uh, adopt this idea? You don't think that they would imprint that into your system? You might want to be careful. They'll do it right under your nose. 844-527-8723. In culture from the Register UK. Facebook founder calls trusted users, quote, dumb blanks. You can fill it in there. Lovable Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg called his first few thousand users, quote, dumb blanks, unquote, for trusting him with their data. Published in Instant Message Transcripts. Uh, Facebook has duplicated, hasn't disputed the authenticity, the authenticity of these transcripts. Of course, the founder was 19, and he may have been joking. However, even the article says, humor tells you a lot. The article goes on to say that Facebook's data stash is regarded as something is quite special. It's authenticated against a real person, and the user tends to be over 35 and middle class, the ideal demographic for selling high-value goods and services. Now, culturally, Facebook has a huge impact on everything that we do, how we live. And if you don't believe me, you can just talk to your local Democrat or progressive about how crucial they feel that Facebook was in the 2016 election. So it is very important culturally to see how the founder thinks of you. Now, speaking as somebody who has said many a dumb thing throughout the course of my life, I would give him a pass. Maybe he was joking in confidence, and maybe it's the idea that when you're starting a company, the three people that you need investments from are the three Fs, friends, family, and fools. So maybe he was just thinking about that. I can't believe these people are letting me take their data, and I don't even know if this is going to work. But based on how he feels about other other areas and his social justice philosophy, I don't think that this this thought has strayed too far from how he thinks now. And just remember, you and I make him ridiculous, ridiculously wealthy with our data. So could you live without Facebook? Give me a call at 844-527-8723. From Pew Research Poll, millennials projected to overtake baby boomers as America's largest generation. Now, Americans are on the – I'm sorry, not Americans, but millennials – are on the cusp of surpassing baby boomers as the nation's largest living adult generation, according to the population projections from the U.S. Census Bureau. As of July 1st, 2016, the latest date for which population estimates are available, millennials, who uh, the Pew Research Center defines as between the ages of 22-35 and 2016, numbered 71 million, and the baby boomers, aged 52-70, to numbered 74 million. 
Millennials are expected to overtake boomers in population in 2019 as their numbers swell to 73 and boomers decline to 72. Generation X, that would be ages 36 to 51 in 2016, is projected to pass baby boomers in population by 2028. Now, if you're always confused about how these generations are defined, you know, are they this or that? Because I've heard them from different ways, too. Well, here is how the Pew Research Center breaks them down. They're born between 1981 to 1996. That's put them between, between 20 and 36, which is unfortunate for me because that puts me right at the beginning of it, being 36 years old myself. So to everybody older than me, I guess I will apologize for all millennials out there. Generation X is born between 1966 and 1980. That would be 36 to 51. And then baby boomers would be defined as 1946 to 1964, between the ages of 52 and 70. Now, millennials are supposed to overtake baby boomers, which is obvious because older generations die out. That's how it works. But based on how millennials think, which is based on emotion and how they act and how they are how they've been spoon-fed most of their lives and so forth. Does that bother you that the millennial generation is going to be the largest generation? 844-527-8723. And lastly, in the bulletin from Gallup Poll of the Day, in the U.S., positive attitudes towards foreign trade stay high. Americans' increasingly positive view of foreign trade has stabilized after spiking last year. A strong majority of U.S. adults, that would be 70%, see foreign trade as an opportunity for U.S. economic growth through increased exports rather than a threat to the economic, uh, rather than a threat to the economy from foreign imports. That would be 25%. Before last year, no one more than 58% had held the positive view of trade. Now, this is very interesting because this is what Trump is running on to to put these tariffs on these foreign countries because they are you know, terrible deals and blah, 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 and all of his other rhetoric. So it's very interesting to see that, according to to Gallup, that most people have a pretty positive attitude of foreign trade. And this clashing of this idea versus what Trump is is preaching will be very interesting. Now, it will be in, uh, I would like to see in the next the next time up, we have to actually let the tariffs go in and take effect. But I would like to see how this view would be impacted by the, the actual placing of the tariffs. And it will be very, very interesting to look at. And that concludes the bulletin. We are going to now move on to brass tacks because this is the Bear Brief on the Crusade Channel featuring King Size through from radio size speakers you can give me a call at 844-527-8723 if you want to give me if you want to talk to me about anything that actually was covered in the bulletin during today next up we are going to get down to brass tacks we were going to cut through the noise and the nonsense that is being shouted by all sides right and left to give you both sides of the argument so that you can be as informed as possible Today, I wanted to take a look at the correlation between mental illness and violent behavior. And it's actually very current because I was just shown an article from the Los Angeles Times that states clearly there is a link between mass shootings and mental illness. Now, while I'm reading this article, if you want to jump in and give me a talk and your opinion or your viewpoint, you can give me a call at 844-527-8723. And I'm going to ask you this question while we go through it. it. Your answer may change depending on how we start. 
do you feel there is a correlation between mental illness and violent behavior? 844-527-8723. Now, the genesis of this, this brass tax was a tweet by my favorite little activist, Mr. David Hogg, who tweeted out a week ago, quote, can we agree that if you are mentally and mentally ill individual, you shouldn't be able to get a weapon, unquote. And I'm actually going to, well, let me read my beginning statements, then I'll kind of link in this Los Angeles Time article. Since the events in Parkland, we have heard a lot of people say that this kid was mentally ill. He was crazy. He was an insane person, blah, 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 all kinds of stuff thrown his way. And there has been broad support from various polls that everybody is in favor of keeping guns out of the hands of, quote, people with mental issues. But the problem with this that I see is that's a very easy response, and we're going to get to this other article here too. And that prompts the question, which I asked before, and you can answer it and give me a call at 844-527-8723. Is there an actual correlation between mental illness and violence? Now, I'm going to be – my findings and my research and analysis is going to be based on a published paper in World Psychiatry in 2003, which was called Violence and Mental Illness, an Overview. But first, we're going to get to this article that showed up in the Los Angeles Times February 23rd. And let's see. It is authored by Grant Duell and Michael Raquel. And they say, repeat after me, mass shooters are not disproportionately mentally ill. And it says, this is the opening line of a meme, but it's been circulating in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. But this and other efforts to downplay the role of mental illness in mass shootings are simply misleading. There is a clear relationship between mental illness and mass public shootings. At the broadest level, peer research has shown, or peer-reviewed research has shown that individuals with major mental disorders, those that substantially interfere with life activities, are more likely to commit violent acts, especially if they abuse drugs. Remember that. When we focus more narrowly on mass public shootings, an extreme and unfortunate rare form of violence, we see a, high, a relatively high rate of mental illness. According to our research, at least 59% of the 150, 185 mass public shootings, that's way too high, but we'll get into that in another day, that took place in the United States from 1900 through well, 2017 were carried out by people who had either been diagnosed with mental disorders or demonstrated signs of serious mental illness prior towards the attack. Uh, let's see. Both rates are considerably higher than those found in general population, more than three times higher than the rate of mental illness found among American adults, about 15 times higher than the rate of serious mental illness found among American adults. Okay. So they're trying to make this case that 59% of the people that were involved in these shootings are mentally ill. And of course you can't use their research because the links they provide, you have to subscribe to actually read. As opposed to world psychology, which gave you a very the, – the piece that I based my research on gave you the entire article. And then they gave – their research was a link to a book on Amazon. So I'm already a little more than, than not a fan of these guys. But let me read you what I have from the paper in 2003 titled Violence and Mental Illness. An overview. The paper evaluates the relationship of mental illness and violence by asking three questions. Are the mentally ill violent? Are the mentally ill at an increased risk of violence? And then are they a public risk? 
Mental disorders are neither necessary nor sufficient causes of violence. A major determinant of violence continue to be sociodemographic and economic factors. Substance abuse, which this article from the Los Angeles Times tried to slip by you, substance abuse is a major de uh, determinant of violence, and this is true whether it occurs in the context of a concurrent mental illness or not. Therefore, early identification and treatment of substance abuse problems and greater attention to the diagnose the diagnosis and management of concurrent substance abuse disorder among seriously mental ill may be potentially uh, may be potentially violence prevention strategies. Members of the public exaggerate both the strengths of the association between mental illness and violence and their own personal risk. Finally, too little is known about the social context contextual determinants of violence. But the research supports the very the view that mentally ill are more often the victims than perpetrators of violence. And that's the beginning part of the paper. Once again, you're listening to the Bad Brief here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth or Radio Size Speakers. We're looking at the connection between the mental between mental illness and violence. And now we're especially looking at this article that says there is a connection between mass shootings and mental illness. And I want to know what you think. Do you feel there is a connection? You can give me a call at 844-527-8723. Let's get back to the article. Now, not the article, but the actual study. The public is no less accustomed to experiencing violence among the mentally ill, although these experiences are mostly vicarious through movie depictions of crazed killers or real-life dramas played out with disturbing, disturbing frequency on the nightly news. The public most feared violence that is random, senseless, and unpredictable, and they associate this with mental illness. Indeed, they are more reassured to know that someone was stabbed to death in a robbery than stabbed to death by a psychotic man. Public perception of the link between mental illness and violence are central to stigma and discrimination as people are more likely to condone forced legal action and coercion treatments when violence is at issue. Scientists are less interested in the occurrence of isolated acts of violence among those with a mental illness and more interested in whether the mentally ill commit acts of violence with greater frequency or severity than do non -mental, their non-mentally ill counterparts. Therefore, the question of whether the mentally ill are at a higher, higher than average risk of violence is central to the scientific debate. Because the scientific method, methodology challenges, uh, challenges faced by researchers in this field, the nature of their association remains unclear. Now, for example, violence has been difficult to measure directly, so the researchers have often relied on Document, uh, documentation or uncorroborated uh, self-reports, which is very interesting because, and that's the end of that paper part so far, um, because if you look at their peer-reviewed research, their whole way, the title of the, their, their paper is Understanding the Relationship Between the Mentally Disordered and Violence, the Need for a crimin uh, Criminological <laughs> Perspective. And I and once again, I can't get in to actually look at what they're using, what methodology they're using. But I have a feeling that if I was to get in there and start looking through their reports, their data, it's going to be a lot of uncorroborated self-reports. Because they talk about um, 
their criminology, their criminal theories, including social leaning, social stress, social control, rational choice, social disorganization. And none of that really seems like it would be something that you need or could use in regards to how the mentally ill become violent or are violent because you have two different ones. And if, I'm pretty sure there are some of you out there right now saying, hey, well, Richard, obviously you're – your study was done in 2003, so this study must be more up to date. Yeah, this one was done three years later. So let's all let's all hang back on that before we start ripping apart, you know, data versus data. You are listening to the Bear Brief here on the Crusade Channel, King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. We are talking about the link between mental illness and violence, the supposed link that exists between the two. And I want to know what you think. You can give me a call at 844-527-8723. Do you believe there is one? Do you believe there isn't one? We'll get back to the article. Now, this world psychology um, report or overview actually makes the point that the way people actually try to – I'm saying actually too much – the way people gather their data isn't correct so what happened is in 2000, there was something called the MacArthur Violence Risk Assessment Study, and it made a concentrated effort to address the problem of trying to determine whether the uncooperated reports or the documentation, they were trying to streamline the data to make sure there was an actual correlation between the two. Um, and so as of that point, it was done in 2000, it was the most sophisticated attempt to date to disengage the complex interrelationships now the actual um the objective of that was this previous work has suggested that delusions are associated with a higher risk of violence particularly delusions in which patients believe that people are seeking to harm them or that outside forces are controlling their minds denoted as a threat control override delusion this study explores the relationship between the delusions and violence among patients recently discharged from acute psychiatric hospitalization. Now, in this study, the prevalence of violence among those with a major mental disorder who did not abuse substances, very important, was indistinguishable from their non-substance abusing neighbors in the control. Why do I make a big point about that? Why am I overemphasizing the substance abuse part? Because the Los Angeles Times people, the guys who are hawking a book, they made sure to try and slip this by you. Where did they say it? Um, in the second paragraph, that at the broadest level, their peer-reviewed research shows that individuals with major mental disorders are more likely to commit violent acts especially if they abuse drugs. So what they're doing is correlating their work with the MacArthur Violence Risk Assessment Study. There's nothing new here, folks. They're really trying to manipulate their data to make it look like crazy people are killing people in mass shootings, which is wrong. And I'm going to get more to that as we get down to the bottom. Because once again, the MacArthur Violence Risk Assessment Study in 2000, which is widely regarded as the premier study that associates mental risk or mental illness with violence tendencies, tells us that the prevalence of violence among those with major mental disorders who did not abuse substances is indistinguishable from non-substance abusers. 
huge difference. And these dudes from the Washington, the Los Angeles Times who are pushing their book on Amazon, they throw that away like it's the uh, the end of the bread. Oh, well, you know, if they abuse, you know, if they abuse substances, it may be a little bit higher. No, 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 no. That's the whole thing. And here's what else the MacArthur uh, Violence uh, Risk Assessment Study. That's <laughs> a long title. I can't I gotta kind of remember that. Um, it continues, a concurrent substance abuse disorder doubled the risk of violent behavior. Why am I making such a big deal about that? I'm going to tell you at the end of this article. Substance abuse disorder doubled the risk of violence. Those with schizophrenia had the lowest occurrence of violence over the course of a year, 14.8%, compared to those with bipolar disorder, which was 22%, or major depression, 28%. Delusions were not associated with violence. Even threat control override, which was what we talked about before, um, people who had uh, delusions in which patients believe people are seeking to harm them. Those delusions that cause an individual to think that they're out to harm them. Now, this article from World Psychiatry concludes that although delusions can precipitate violence in individual cases, these, uh, these data suggest that they do not increase the overall risk of violence in persons with mental illness in the year after discharge from hospitalization. Several general conclusions are supported by this brief overview. First, mentally disordered are neither necessarily nor sufficiently uh, nor sufficient cause of violence. So first, mental disorder is not a sufficient cause of violence. The major determinants of violence continue to be social, demographic, and socioeconomic factors, such as being young, male, and of low socioeconomic status. Why don't we look at Nicholas Cruz? Young, his social demographic. Um, he was about your middle class, but he was adopted. And his adopted parents, not that adopted People, it would make a grace, but the fact that his adoptive parents were gone, so he had no connections, socioeconomic factors, and so forth. Second, members of the public undoubtedly exaggerate both the strength of the relationship between major mental disorders and violence, as well as their own personal risk from the, severe, the severely mentally ill. This paper states it is far more likely that people with a serious mental illness will be the victims of violence. Third, substance abuse appears to be the major determinant of violence, and this is true whether it occurs in the context of a concurrent me mental illness or not. Those with substance disorders are major contributors to community violence, perhaps accounting for as much as a third of self-reported violence acts, and seven out of every ten crimes of violence among mentally disordered offenders. It is the substance abuse that is the, most, the highest correlation to violence. And finally, too much past research has focused on the person with mental illness rather than the nature of the social exchange that led up to that violence. Remember, in Nicholas Cruz's case, everybody said it was going to happen. The social interactions told us this was going to be the case. Consequently, back to the paper. We know much less than we should about the nature of the relationships and the contextual determinations of the violence, and much less than we should about opportunities for primary prevention. Nevertheless, current literature supports early identification and treatment of substance abuse problems and greater attention to the diagnosis and management of concurrent blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so that paper is telling you that when you have President Trump, Dana Lash, 
anybody else saying, well, this guy's just a crazy person. This guy's just a nutball. This guy's just a monster. Okay. Very easy to say. Even these people here in this article, Grant Dewey and Michael Roquel, clearly linking mental illness to mass shootings. But they have to, for the sake of their scientific research, state, or for their own validity, that, and I love the throwaway line, especially if they abuse drugs. Oh, I'm sorry. Did do you want to expound on that? <laughs> do you do you want to make? Oh no, that's not a big deal. They're just crazy. Okay, I, I like how you I like how you're doing that. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so obviously I'm too stupid to realize that when the premier research that is only three years older than yours tells you that substance abuse is the major correlation between the mentally ill and any type of violent activity, and you're like, eh, you know what? I don't know. <laughs> it just it rips me because these the mentally ill get stigmatized with this nonsense, and it seems like the rush to blame the mental the mentally ill or those people that struggle with this stuff in our society. You know what? I'm about to go Alex Jones on you. Watch out. It's a cover-up for the ever-expanding pharmaceutical drug industry. Yep, I know. Frogs are gay, blah, blah, blah. But folks, hang with me. Psychotopic drugs can actually interfere with your neurotransmitters in such a way as to upset the delicate processes within your brain needed to maintain your biological functions normally leading to side effects that may resemble mental illness. I'll say that again. Psychotropic drugs can actually interfere with your neurotransmitters in such a way as to upset the delicate process within your brain needed to maintain your biological functions normally, leading to the side effects that may resemble mental illness. Think about it this way. You break your foot. You get medication to help it heal. What are you getting medication for? Uh, you know, keep the pain down or maybe to keep an infection. It's actually treating something physical. When we throw drugs into your brain, what is it treating? What is it treating? Oh, well, it's treating the snapters and the receptors. No, most of the time, it's not treating anything physical. I'll support that case. All the way back in 1996, neuroscientist Stephen ha uh, Heyman published a paper in which he said that, quote, once your brain has undergone a series of comp um, compensatory uh, adaptations to the drug, constant, uh, man, I'm going, I need some of them, Cont uh, compensating for the drugs, your brain operates in a manner that is both, quote, qualitatively and quantitatively different than normal. So these people in L.A. who got this huge article saying there is a clear link, they straight up lying. Straight up lying. I'm calling them out on their nonsense. And if they think I'm and they think I'm lying, they think they're um, slandering them, give me a paper with your research. I want to look through that thing because you're hiding it behind a paywall. I can't get to it. And I know if I look in it, it's going to say substance abuse is the major factor. The brass tacks take on this is despite what these people are saying and what the media is telling you and what politicians tell you, these crimes are not committed by crazy people. They are created by either people with mental illness or non-mental illness. They are, they are committed by people who are abusing some sort of substance. This is the Barrett Brief on the Crusade Channel. King Size Truth from Radio Size Speakers. Give me a call at 844-527-8723. 
Let me know what you think. Do you agree with my crazy statement over here? Getting all hyped up. I get hyped up about that, folks, because in America, in our Western society, we are so afraid to address any kind of mental illness. You break an arm, everybody's like, oh, get well soon. If you tell anybody, oh, man, I'm having some issues, you know, with schizophrenia or some other kind of, some kind of delicate issues with our brains, everybody runs. They're like, see you. Because we are so afraid to help people with mental illness. So anytime that, it, yeah, it's crazy, 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 crazy. All right. Now we're going to move on to Br Grin and Barrett, where we take a look at an issue that's so ridiculous that we have to just grin and bear it. Today we're going to take a look at the progressive nostalgia that has infested the Catholic Church. If you notice a progressive strain at your local parish, you can give me a call at 844-527-8723. This comes from the Miami, uh, Miami Herald, the Catholic Herald. And it was about last week's Catholics for Dreamers, a painful exercise in 1960s nostalgia. Last week, Catholics for Dreamers rally in Washington, D.C. was excru uh, excru I can say the stuff when I'm not trying to read it. was super painful to watch. Granted, I watched Tuesday's event unfold from my smartphone on a train from New York to Boston, but judging by the reports, there were many gray heads. Don't get me wrong, seniors have as much a right to protest as millennials. But the whole thing seems to have turned into an exercise in baby boomer nostalgia. Take Father Thomas Reed's column, Tomorrow I Plan to Get Arrested. It has since been updated to reflect the fact that he was indeed arrested. In it, he wrote, This will be my first time getting arrested. Many of my Jesuit colleagues were arrested during the 1960s and 70s when demonstrations were about Vietnam, civil rights, and farm workers. As part of these demonstrations, peaceful civil disobedience was not uncommon. And that's the end of that quote. There's more than a whiff of regret at having missed the golden age of progressive rabble-rousing. Very good point by Mr. Davis. Back to the article. Father Reese is obviously inviting comparisons to the brave men and women who were beaten, imprisoned, and killed in the fight for African-American equality. But is this comparison apt? He and the 30 to 40 others who were arrested knew there would be no real negative repercussions. In fact, all of them were released by 4 p.m., Really, it's a badge of honor, proof that you stuck it to the man, and you can earn it with plenty of time left to make your dinner reservation in Georgetown. Man, Mr. Davis is absolutely knocking it out of the park on this one. Back to the article. To make matters even more cringeworthy, there was this tweet by fellow Jesuit Father James Martin. Father Reese arrested in the U.S. Senate during protest on behalf of Dreamers. On the Mount of Beatitudes today in the Holy Land, we read out Jesus' words. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sale of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is he, untweet, or unquote tweet. Back to the article. To make matters even, uh, let's see. Nope, that was the same thing I was about to read. Father Reese arrested, oh no, he actually, um, actually followed up. There was two tweets by James Martin. As a television commentator, Father John Morris pointed out, when Christians are dying for the faith around the world, I don't think we should use the word persecution lightly. Yeah. To make matters even more cringeworthy, there is yet another tweet from Father James Martin. Um, was it the same thing? Oh, actually, no, I just double-typed. Sorry about that. But we'll go back to television commentator Jonathan Morse's point. When Christians are dying for faith around the world, I don't think we should use the word persecution so lightly. 
Uh, let's see. And that is the end of the actual article because apparently I just got, uh, copied and pasted it twice. So now what we have here is an, an example of the liberation theology. What's that? Well, it's a religious movement that that arose in the late 20th century and centered and centered in Latin America. It's thought to apply religious faith by eating the poor and oppressed through involvement in political and civic affairs. It was stressed, it stressed both heightened awareness of the, quote, sinful, unquote, socioeconomic structures that cause social inequalities and active participation in challenging those structures. The thing about the liberation theology that you need to take into account is it draws serious inspiration from the philosophy of Karl Marx, ladies and gentlemen. Which is why you are seeing a push for these social causes like immigration, climate change, anything that's social justice it seems like the Catholic Church is behind. And the reason why that is the case, not because it's, you know, we don't want inequality and we don't want any of these, any of these other things. It's really because of this push through the social liberation theology. And this idea of Karl Marx's philosophy being integrated into everyday teachings. I'm sure you've seen this in your local parish. I don't know, maybe you've adopted it as well. But to have these type of things be at odds with the Catholic teachings that have gone back to the founding of the church, it, is, it gets very unnerving when you see people who are so quick to jump on to this this nostalgia of being a part of the 60s. The 60s nostalgia is real. It's not just in the Catholic Church. It's really present um, in education as well. I don't mean to, to take a U-turn off here. But the idea that, oh, wow, we need to fight for this inequality. All right, folks. You know, the situation with the Dreamers is interesting and it's not really great, but also it's not the civil rights movement. It's not blacks actually sitting at a counter and getting beat and cigarettes burned into their their skulls and milkshakes poured on them. I know these Dreamers are so oppressed. We give them free college. Oh, these Dreamers are so oppressed. We give them pretty much anything they want. It's totally different than what um, what happened during the '60s. But this push, this this push to to try and get us to feel the same way is it's a little ridiculous, um, and it's it's sad. And if you see the if you see stuff like that, if you see a push towards more social justicey type of stuff, understand. That what it is is the liberation theology, and it's infected all the major um, orders, and they believe it. And unfortunately, right now, it's kind of what puts us at odds between traditional, quote unquote, traditional Catholics and modern day Catholics. It's the liberation theology. All right, folks, we're going to move on to the last segment of the show, which is the world famous, you got to be kidding me, where we look at actual news stories and think to ourselves, 
you got to be kidding me. Yeah, folks, I don't take points on creative creativity, okay? <laughs> Sometimes you just got to name it like you see it. From the city of Corsicana, Texas, in the DFW Metroplex. A statue of a gorilla and prime attraction for kids at the community park playground in Corsicana was removed by the city. A spokesman for the city said some community members found the gorilla offensively, offensive, racially insensitive in some form and requested its removal from the park. We can understand this because we have an obligation to listen to all of our citizens to determine what is offensive and what is not, especially in public places, said the Corsicana mayor, Don Dembro. Dembro saw an uptick in complaints about the playground primate during the last weeks. There were more and more phone calls and personal discussions. So he, the city manager, and A, that would be one city council member, decided to need to come down. Tyranny of social media. Three people complain, it's got to come down. You gotta be kidding me. Concludes today's Bear Brief on the Crusade Channel. Grace and peace to all of you.